Let me ask you a question. And actually, I'm going to take shouted out answers from the floor. I'm going to take a risk here. I want you to tell me, just shout it out, what some of the most famous love stories or romances are, whether it's literature, movie, on your market set, go. Okay, somebody said The Notebook. That's on my list. What's that? Titanic. Okay, give, who's this? Where? The Princess Bride. Not only is it on my list, we'll get there in a minute. Here's what I got. First of all, I think you guys cut Romeo and Juliet might be number one on the list, I would hope anyway. Pride and Prejudice, if you're familiar with that. I did have the notebook down. I've never seen it, but I've heard that it's good. And then I also put Gone to the Wind. So anyway, you guys got some of those, all right? Now, let me just clarify really quickly here. Um, and again, I, I realize the danger of saying this, but um, it's not just females who like romances or rom-coms, right? I mean, that's a that is probably a generalization. It's also guys, right? And so it's Braveheart, it's Gladiator, it's The Matrix, even The Avengers has a little bit of romance in it, right? I mean, it's there. And uh, anyway, in just a moment, we're going to begin today's sermon with a clip from what I would argue is one of the greatest romantic movies of the last 50 years, that's slightly tongue-in-cheek, um, but we'll get there in a minute. Before we begin, let me take a moment and let's pray. Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for your word. I thank you for what you have to say to us. Um, Father, I thank you that you're, you're the one who's the great author of romance, Father, that even our romances here on earth are a picture of the eternal romance that we will have with you. Father, I pray all these things today in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. If you've never seen The Princess Bride, I'd totally recommend it. It's very cute. I don't know what year it came out. Anybody, I mean, mid-80s or something? So the special effects are lacking, but the story is great. Anyway, all right, I recommend it. Now, what's interesting is the little guy right there, Fred Savage, um, is sick. And so his grandfather has come over to to read to him during the day. And his grandfather picks this story called The Princess Bride. And of course, what he's doing is he's tricking his grandson into letting him read this story that's not just about sports. It's not just about action. It also has this element of romance in it. And you can see the little boy there going, wait a minute, wait a minute. Is this one of those kissing stories? This is what he was getting ready to say there. Now, what's interesting is af- after they read the story, the grandfather wraps it up that day and his little grandson responds by asking him to read him the same story again the next day. And his grandfather's reply is, as you wish. And so it's a very cute little um, way of responding. It's not just a love story about Buttercup and Wesley, but it's a love story about a grandfather and a grandson as well. Now, the question today is this. What does the Bible have to say about love? What does the Bible have to say about love? Most of us know some of the familiar passages of Scripture. We maybe know 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind, etc., etc., We know John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Most of us are familiar with that verse. Maybe we've seen it on TV at a sporting event. And we know the famous verse, most of us, from 1 John 4.8, in which John writes that God is love. The Bible has really a lot to say about love. In fact, the Bible mentions either the Hebrew or the Greek words for love about 682 times. So the Bible is filled with all sorts of different truths about love. Now, in our culture... When we typically think about love, we think about it as an emotion. That's primarily, primarily how we think about it. When we talk about love as Westerners, we're usually describing how we feel. We're, we're, we feel affectionate to our children. We feel affectionate toward our spouse, or we feel affectionate to a particular barbecue restaurant, maybe our favorite place. The Bible speaks of love as an emotion, as a feeling as well, 
but it's almost always linked with action. In fact, I would argue that biblical love is really an action even more than an emotion. Today, let's look at a few of those actions that are associated with this biblical godly love. The first thing we see is this, and it's related to that first scene. It's that love serves. Love serves. Listen to John 13, 1 through 5. I'll read this section. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. I've been wearing Chacos now for probably 20 plus years. The first pair that I ever bought was at the REI in Denver, Colorado, if you guys have ever been to that REI, it's really cool. I was speaking at a camp in Buena Vista, Colorado that was just at the foot of the Collegiate Peaks. And during that week, um, we were constantly rafting and we were hiking, we were walking around sort of the dusty, dirty trails there around the camp and my Chacos were awesome, they were super durable. Over the next several years, I wore those same chacos across the world. I wore them in Israel and Italy and India. And I wish I could have taken pictures of my chaco feet with like the Colosseum in the background, uh, you know, or the, the Masada maybe in the background or the Rockies in the background. That would have been a cool ad for chaco. Now, one of the things that you would have seen if I had done that is that each of those pictures would have had my feet, but they also would have had the filth and the dirt and the grime from all of those places all over my feet. Some of you who are Chaco wearers know what I'm talking about. Sometimes you wear your Chacos out for the day and you come home at night and you take your Chacos off and you have what I call a Chaco tan. You guys ever gotten a Chaco tan? Although sometimes when you hop in the shower and you wash your feet off, it turns out that it's not a tan, it's just dirt that sort of has made the stripes of the Chacos look on your feet. See, I see nodding people out there. You know what I'm talking about. Anyway, covered with filth, covered with filth. In Jesus' time, they did not have Chacos, but everyone did wear sandals. And they wore these sandals on these very dusty, dirty roads that were traveled by all sorts of animals and all sorts of people. None of these roads were paved. It was common upon entering a Roman home during that era for a servant to wash the feet of all the people that entered into that home, especially before there was some form of communal meal since they would have not been sitting in chairs like we sit at a dining room table. Instead, they would have been lounging or reclining around a, a low table on the floor. And so everyone's feet would have been in close proximity whenever, with everyone else's elbows and faces. So it was important for these servants to wash the feet of these travelers. Now, in this case, the case that we read about just now, there was no servant to wash the feet of the disciples or these weary travelers. So John tells us the following. He tells us that Jesus got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Let me pause for a second here. Let me just let you envision that for a second. Let me have you think about what if you were to wash some of your friends' feet? Think about what that would feel like, the visceral nature of it. There's so much here that we could focus on from this uh, passage And one of my favorite things about this particular story is that Jesus' service flowed out of his identity. Let me say that one more time. Jesus' service flowed out of his identity. He knew who he was. He knew from where he had come and he knew where he was going. That's what this passage says. And his service flowed out of that knowledge. We also see that the washing of the disciples' feet 
was a sign pointing to the reality of being washed by the blood of Christ. We could focus on that at length as well. Each of those could be an individual sermon. At the moment, however, I just want to draw your attention back to the end of verse 1 where John writes the following. He says this, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus served the disciples because he loved them. Let me ask a question real quickly. What do servants do? And you can think about servants in your particular context. You can transport yourself back 2,000 years ago and think of what servants would have done back then. But fundamentally, what servants do is they do what no one else wants to do. That's what servants do. They clean toilets. Servants make beds. They prepare food and eat after everyone else has had the chance to finish. Servants handle all the details of the boring, mundane, dirty things of life so they can make other people look good. Krista and I had a mentor of sorts named Polly Long when we were living um, in St. Louis. I was in seminary. And she used to say this. She, She would say, you know you have a servant's heart when you let someone treat you like one. Let me say that one more time. You know you have a servant's heart when you let somebody treat you like one. And I just remember at the time thinking, uh, especially because we had just been married, thinking like, wow, the reality of that is far deeper than I ever realized. Because it's very easy to love that little axiom. It's very easy to love that saying, but the reality of allowing someone to treat you like a servant, wow, that's a different ballgame altogether. Philippians 2 tells us that Jesus, though equal with God, willingly made himself a servant. Some of you know this passage. Emptying himself humbling himself, and even becoming obedient to God's plan for his life, which was a plan that involved suffering and death. Isaiah 53, which um, Mullane read this morning, um, tells even more about Jesus' servanthood. There we read of him carrying humanity's afflictions, sorrows, and sins. How do we know that Jesus loves us? Because love serves. Love serves. What does this mean for us? What does it mean for you? For one thing, it means that at this moment, you have the opportunity to believe that Jesus loves you and that his service is a sign pointing to that affection, pointing to that love. As Isaiah 53, he carried your afflictions. He sits with you in your sorrows. He carried your sins. He bore them upon himself. He emptied himself. He poured out his life, his privileges, and his desires because he loved you. You have the chance to believe that this morning. It's evidence of the fact that God loves you, that Jesus loves you. And if that's true, then what else does that mean for us? What else does it mean for you? If love serves, then it means that we are to love like Christ loved and serve like he served. It means that if you are a father, then you take the very nature of a servant for your family. Think about that for a moment. It means that if you're a boss, you take on the very nature of a servant for those under your leadership. If you're a parent, then your love to your children looks like serving them. What does godly love look like for us? It looks like servanthood because love serves. What else do we see in the Bible about love? We see that also love seeks. Look at Luke 19 verses 1 through 10. Many of you are familiar with this story, but I'll read it. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. This was a city to the south of Jerusalem. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. 
So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. We'll get there in a minute. Verse eight, but Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give, every, give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Love seeks. It's very clear from the entirety of scripture that God pursues us because he loves us. God pursues us because he loves us. God pursues you because he loves you. After Adam and Eve sin, God enters the garden and he seeks them out. God sought out Jacob and Joseph, who for various reasons had both wandered away from him. Not only that, but God pursues, he seeks after Jonah and Elijah when they just didn't wander away, but they ran away, they fled from God. In the New Testament, we see Jesus pursuing Matthew. We see Jesus pursuing Nathaniel. We see him pursuing the woman at the well. Jesus even tells stories about lost sheep and lost coins to illustrate what he came to do to seek and to save the lost. That was his mission. In the passage we just read, we see Jesus seeking out a tax collector named Zacchaeus. And you know, maybe know the story of Zacchaeus, who as the children's song tells us, was a wee little man and a wee little man was he. Every now and then my children sing that to me. Thank you guys very much. You may also know the reputation of tax collectors in the first century Roman world. In Israel, these were people who, though they were Jewish, were colluding with the Roman government to collect taxes from their own people. For that reason, Jews would have considered them traitors, and they were hated for their betrayal of their fellow countrymen. And it was also widely known that tax collectors not only took the tax that was required by the Roman government, but they also charged an extra percentage off the top in order to line their own pockets. So they were not only seen as traitors, but they were seen as thieves as well. At best, they would have been tolerated, and at worst, they would have been hated, and they knew it. Here, however, we see Jesus not avoiding nor despising this tax collector. In fact, Jesus makes a beeline to the tree that Zacchaeus has climbed up into. He looks up at him, and he tells him to come down. Jesus lets him know that they're having lunch that day, at that very moment. And everything in the narrative makes it clear that Jesus was on a mission. He was seeking out this tax collector. He was pursuing him. He had something in store for him, and that something was repentance and ultimately salvation. We see that in verses 8 through 10. Let me read it again. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham for the son of man came to seek and save the lost. Love seeks us out. Love pursues us. God pursues you. In C.S. Lewis's uh, book, The Horse and His Boy, it's one of the Chronicles of Narnia. In that book, Lewis tells of an orphan who is raised as a slave in a foreign land. He escapes and he journeys north looking for his home and looking for his identity. During the journey, he encounters a number of lions that chase him, but he manages to escape each time upon his horse. 
And then at the very end of the story, exhausted and riding into the darkness of night, a great lion finally catches up with him and begins walking alongside his horse. And what we know, but he doesn't, is that this great lion is actually Aslan, the Christ figure in the Chronicles of Narnia. I'm going to read a little section. Who are you? Shasta, that's the boy, said barely above a whisper. The answer is this, one who has waited long for you to speak, said the lion. Its voice was not loud, but very large and deep. From here, Shasta, that's this orphan boy, too tired to run anymore, tells the lion his story and about his perilous journey. And after talking about all of his uh, adventures, Shasta says this, don't you think it was bad luck to meet so many lions? There was only one lion, said the voice. What on earth do you mean? I've just told you there were at least two lions the first night, and there was only one, but he was swift of foot. But how do you know? I know because I was the lion. And as Shasta gaped with open mouth and said nothing, the voice continued, I was the lion who forced you to join with Erebus. I was the cat who comforted you among the houses of the dead. I was the lion who drove the jackals from you while you slept. I was the lion who gave the horses their new strength of fear for the last mile so that you should reach King Loon in time. And I was the lion, you do not remember, who pushed the boat in which you lay, a child near death, so that it came to shore where a man sat, wakeful at midnight, to receive you. Who are you? asked Shasta. Myself, said the voice, very deep and so low that the earth shook. And again, myself, loud and clear and gay. And then the third time, myself, whispered so softly that you could barely hear it. And yet it seemed to come from all around you as if the leaves rustled with it. Some of you have dramatic stories of how God pursued you. You can think for a moment about the dramatic elements of your stories. There may have been no lions, maybe no talking horses, but God still miraculously sought you out nonetheless. Often these stories involve God seeking you through the fog of addiction. Some of these stories involve God miraculously appearing to you like he did to Paul on the Damascus road. Some of you were pursued by God through campus outreach or through Young Life. Some volunteer or worker pursued you and loved you and entered into your world despite the messiness of your life. There are others of you still who are being pursued by God right now. Even as we speak, there's a wrestling match going on inside of your heart. You can feel God calling you into a relationship with Him, but you're not quite sure that He's safe. You're not quite sure that he can be trusted with your life. Still others of you have walked with God for years, but the distractions, the disappointments, and the wounds of life have led you further and further away from him. I want to remind you that God is pursuing you too, just like Jesus pursued Peter after his betrayal, and God pursued Elijah after he fled into the wilderness and wanted to walk away and give up. God is pursuing you because love seeks. So love serves, love seeks, and finally, love sacrifices. Listen to Matthew 20, verses 25 through 28. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know the rulers, that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So here in Matthew 20, we not only see this, the theme of servanthood again, but we also see this theme of sacrifice. 
Jesus contrasts his economy with that of the world's economy. In the world, greatness is defined by exercising power over the weak, but in God's economy, greatness is determined by service and sacrifice. Let me say that one more time. In God's economy, greatness is determined by service and by sacrifice. Jesus clearly said that he came to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to buy out our debt to sin and to death, and the price was his very life. Romans 5 affirms this same truth that love sacrifices. I'm going to begin reading in verse 6. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to d- even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were sinners we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So according to these verses, Jesus' sacrifice accomplished any number of things. They accomplished justification. We see that in verse 9. Justification means that you're declared righteous. It's a legal declaration. Standing before a judge, God says, you are not only not guilty, but you are innocent. It achieved salvation, also found in verse 9. It achieved reconciliation with God, that's found in verses 10 and 11. Jesus loved us so much that he willingly sacrificed his life for you and me, that we might be justified, that we might be saved, that we might be reconciled with his Father. And it cost him his life. On Tuesday mornings, there's a group of us that meet in the great room to read over a book by Larry Crabb, who's a Christian counselor. And in the beginning of this book that we've been reading, uh, Crabb defines godly love. He says this. He says, godly love is to be supernaturally committed to the well-being of another at any cost to ourselves. Let me read that one more time. To be supernaturally committed to the well-being of another at any cost to ourselves. Let that sink in for just a moment. That's godly love. It's quite a definition. It's so hard to do it that it requires supernatural help. It requires commitment. The goal is the well-being of another. That's agape love, by the way. But look at the final clause, at any cost to ourselves, at any cost to ourselves. That's exactly how Jesus loved us, sacrificially, completely. Love sacrifices.